This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Feet were given in order that you might run and do good works. But if you are careless, you will cause wicked works by means of them. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is probably our oldest sermon yet. This is coming to you from the late 300 ADs. He died in 407, so it was definitely before that point. It was preached in either Constantinople or Antioch. In this episode, we are going back, and we are talking way, way back. Uh, The oldest sermon we've done on this show by a thousand years, and it's hard to get in your head just how far back that this is. Uh, This is before the United States of America. This is before the discovery of North and South America, before the printing press, before the medieval ages. This is going back to a time when the Roman Empire is still around. And what really hit me with how far back this goes is when I was talking with the person who delivered this sermon, he mentioned that Chrysostom was actually preaching in the same cities, in the same Roman Empire, that Paul would have been 300 years before. So when Chrysostom is, you know, reading in the New Testament about a letter to a city, in his mind, that's a city in his own country being read. It's, it would be as if someone in the United States of America was reading about a letter uh, in Boston. It's, it's a part of the country still today. So, this is going back a ways. We're feeling New Testament in this time. And, and when he dies, it's only three years before, before the fall of Rome, which is kind of the tip off to the end of the Roman Empire. So, he's, he's preaching here kind of at the end of this old ancient empire era. Troy, Chrysostom was born in 349 AD, and as previously mentioned, he would go on to die in 407 AD. His name actually came to mean golden mouth because he was so well known for being a good speaker, being a good communicator, preaching effectively. And growing up, no one would have thought that. He wanted to be a lawyer growing up. That's what he planned to do. That's what his family planned to do. But around 23, he got baptized and had a change of heart and decided he wanted to go into ministry, wanted to serve in the church. Joel, he was ordained in uh, 386, but he was already preaching before that. And uh, one problem that he saw was that his congregants were getting into uh, celebrating the festivals and the rituals of the Jewish people. He believed that the church needed to separate itself from the culture and instead keep everything focused on Christ. And... This is just kind of a side thing. He he. This guy is always going after his congregants and calling them to holy living and separate living. And this is just one of the many areas where he did that. But it was one of the things that I think most applies to us today. And the time frame he's living in, Roman Rome is wealthy. The old uh, theory on the fall of empires would say that Rome is in the luxury state where they're kind of decadent. They're letting their uh, their luxury get to them. They're no longer disciplined. And whether that's true or not, this is definitely what he sees in his congregation. And so he's going after it. And one of the ways we can stand out, I think, in our culture today is to be people of discipline who really 
stand out in that way, who are people who, you know, I know that other people are going to spend that money or do this or do that, but I'm going to be living a more narrow, holy lifestyle and more self-denial. And that ends up being the big thing that we will talk about more that he's really about. Yeah, and he he became kind of famous for this. In addition to his fame from being a speaker and a preacher and just having a way with words, he kind of became known for his kind of attack on the luxury class of the Roman cities at that time. Those higher-ups you know, had a very over-materialistic way of living, and Chrysostom kind of kind of called them out on that he, he identified with the people I you know, very much we would call him a people's man in today's day and age he wanted to help out with the poor and the rejected and he himself rejected a lot of the prestige that came along with being a priest with being a leader in the church during that time he had access to all of the finest clothes and living quarters and he put that all aside to live a, a modest life as much as he could he was very ascetic, or he's this big believer in self-denial. At one point, and this is my favorite part of the story of Chrysostom, he basically looks around him and he goes, I'm done. Like, I'm sick of all the wealth. I'm sick of all the food, the luxury. You guys don't get it. I need to get away from all of you. And so he moves into a cave on the side of the mountain, and he says, I'm not leaving this cave. I'm not going to leave this cave for two, for at least until I've memorized the Bible. And I'm just going to reject everything. He is in there for two years and he's memorizing the Bible and people are coming to him. Uh, but while he's living in a cave with damp, no sunlight, you can imagine he, uh, he gets sick and basically is dragged out of the cave due to the sickness that he gets from being there. But doing this, being so radically different in an era where all the other priests are enjoying the high life of the state kind of authorizing their lifestyle and then you have this other guy over here literally living in a cave trying to memorize god's word and saying get you know get this materialism away from me he got a huge following people saw this guy and they were like he's authentic he's very genuine you know i mean it, it makes sense if in our day we saw like a mega pastor or someone like that he just sold everything he owned and went and lived in the woods and was just memorizing scripture you know, we may say a lot of things about that person, but we would, most of us, I think, would say he seems to really believe what he believes. And it would be incredible. It'd be something that really stands out to us, I think, especially in this age we live in. We we can really mirror a lot with what he's going through. And I think we've even all had that feeling where we kind of just like, what if I just moved away from everything and just lived in the woods or something? I, would that be a better way to live my life for God? I, I've had that thought. And so he comes back, he's sick, he gets better, and he is extremely popular. And all the leaders of uh, the big parts of Rome want him. They love him. They want this guy. He's, he's the big one. And so he, at the time, he's preaching and living in Constantinople, but he refuses to leave. So the people of Antioch actually kidnap him, drag him to Antioch, and basically force him to be ordained as the archbishop there. You're not leaving. You're going you're gonna to teach us now. Forget about it because you're popular and we want you. And this this didn't go great for Chrysostom. We see this all throughout his life, this kind of struggle and this push and pull between the people that love him and the higher-ups that don't like him because he is calling them out on it. So when it, whenever someone is championed by those who are struggling, they're often hated by others. And in this case, those, those higher-ups that really didn't like him. His sermons about helping the poor and attacking the luxury class really offended the higher-ups and he was huge on getting rid of corruption in the church and stopping church officials from taking bribes 
Whenever he found someone that had taken a bribe, he fired them on the spot immediately for it. And this caused a lot of political upheaval within the church state during that time. He was accused of abusing his power. He was accused of being a tyrant. And because he was very faithful to helping the widows out, some people scandalized this and accused him of being an adulterous man. It all it all led to a big mess, and he was eventually exiled from the courts, even though at the time the people loved him. He was one of the most popular men in that region of the world. And we will get into what happens after his exile right after a quick break. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. So you have this situation where they kidnap him and they make him the archbishop because he's so popular for telling the truth. And then that truth that he's telling is about five years later is what gets him exiled. Uh, He attempts to return from exile. You know, I'm going to get back in the ministry. And so he sends all these letters to supporters, people who like him, the Pope in Rome. Um, But this... Because of that movement of people thinking, okay, let's bring him back, the the courts reaffirmed his exile and actually sent him even farther away. They wanted him further from his supporters to push him even further out. So they sent them to a very small island in the Black Sea, and and getting out there, he uh, it was just such a long trip, and he was at this point older in life, and you know he had not always taken the best care of himself because he was denying everything that could possibly help him. He uh, he basically died on the way out to that island. Chrysostom, he's famous for a lot of things. He's famous for his theology, but I think maybe even more so he's famous for his his way with words, his preaching style. He made a huge impact on everybody during that era. We have like around 600 of his homilies, and I know a lot of those are probably fakes, but even if half those are fakes, that's still a huge testament towards how important he was in that day and how much people respected what he said. And he's hardcore. He's calling people out. He's he's clearly against, he's against abortion. He's against the horse racing and gambling that was going on. He's against prostitution. He's against gluttony. There was a lot of forms of entertainment during that era that he calls people out for. And he was a huge fan of Paul's, which is it kind of makes him unique in that day and age where he's at in that era. A lot of people were focused on Peter because of his connection to Rome. And again, this is in that Roman Empire. So being focused more on Paul and, and kind of being a big fan of Paul's there, it made him stand out. It made him unique in that. This sermon the on the power of man to resist the devil, it was a part of a, a several day marathon of preaching that he was doing. And he's... He's going after this tendency that I think exists even to this day where people will blame something and they'll say, oh, that's, that's the devil. That's just the devil getting to you. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I definitely have. And in this sermon, he really wants to say, no, like you are fully capable of doing the things that you do wrong yourself. And yeah, the devil does get involved. The devil is definitely real. But let's be honest, most of the time your problems are because of you. And I really love the way that he basically is just taking that responsibility off the devil and putting it 
honestly back on our on our shoulders on our hands because if we're really trusting in God and following God and our daily walks with the Lord we don't have to fear the devil he's not something we should live in terror of we know that at the end we win right God has taken care of him already on the cross and so in actuality whether something was of the devil or of our own hands which it more likely is at the end of the day God will have the victory and our job is to follow him and and walk with him When Isaac, in old times, was desirous to eat a meal at the hands of his son, he sent his son out from the house to the hunt. But when this Isaac was desirous to accept a meal at my hands, he did not send me out from the house, but himself ran to our table. Who could be more tenderly affectionate than he, and who more humble? Who thought fit to show his warm love and deign to descend so far? On this account, we also having spent the tones of our voice and the strength of our feet over the morning discourse when we saw his fatherly face, we forgot our weakness, laying aside our fatigue, we were uplifted with pleasure, we saw his illustrious hoary head and our soul was filled with light. On this account too, we set out our table with readiness in order that he should eat and bless us. There's no fraud and guile here as there was then there. One indeed was commanded to bring the meal, but another brought it. But I was commanded to bring it, and I brought it too. Bless me then, O my Father, with spiritual blessing, which we all also pray ever to receive, and which is profitable not only to you, but also to me and to all of these people. Entreat the common master of us all to prolong your life to the old age of Isaac, for this is both for me and for these more valuable and more needful than the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. But it is time to proceed to set out our table. What then is this? The remains of what was lately said with a view to our love of you. For still, still we renew our discourse concerning the devil, which we started two days ago, which we also addressed to the initiated this morning when we were discoursed to them about the renunciation and the covenant. And we do this not because our discourse about the devil is sweet to us, but because the doctrine about him is full of security for you. For he is an enemy and a foe, and it is a great security to know clearly the tactics of your enemy. We have said lately that he does not overcome by force, nor by tyranny, nor through compulsion, nor through violence. Since were this so, he would have destroyed all men. And in testimony of this, we brought forward the swine, against which the demons were unable to venture anything before the permission of the master. The herds and flocks of Job too, not even did the devil venture to destroy these, until he received power from above. We learned this one thing first, that he does not overcome us by force or by oppression. Next, after that, we added that even when he overcomes by deceitfulness, he does not get the better of all men. Then again, we brought that athlete Job himself into the midst, against whom he set countless schemes going, and never got the better of him, but withdrew defeated. So one question still remains. What then is this matter, that if he does not overcome, says one, by force, then he must surely do it by deceitfulness? 
And on this account, some say it were better that he should be destroyed. For even if Job got the better of him, Adam was deceived and overthrown. Now if once for all he had been removed from the world, Adam would never have been overthrown. But now he remains, and is defeated indeed by one, but gets the better of many. Ten overcame him, but he himself overcomes and wrestles down ten thousand. And if God took him away from the world, these ten thousand would not have perished. What then will we say to this? Well, that first of all, they who overcome are more valuable than they who are defeated. Even if the latter is more in number, and the overcomer is less, for better is one, says he, that does the will of God than ten thousand transgressors. And next, that if the antagonists were taken away, he who overcomes is then injured. For if you let the adversary remain, the more slothful are injured, indeed, not on account of the more diligent, but by their own slothfulness. But if you take away the antagonist, the more diligent are betrayed on account of the slothful, and neither exhibit their own power or win crowns. Perhaps you have not yet understood what has been said, so it is necessary that I should say it again more clearly. Let there be one antagonist, but let there also be two athletes about to wrestle against him. And of these two athletes, let one be consumed with gluttony, unprepared, who is void of strength. Nevertheless, but let the other one be diligent, of good habit, passing his time in the wrestling school, in many gymnastic exercises, and exhibiting all the practice which bears up to the contest. If then you take away the antagonist, which of these two have you injured, the slothful and unprepared, or the earnest one who has toiled so much? It is quite clear that it is the earnest one. For the one indeed is wronged by the slothful after the antagonist has been taken away. But the slothful, while he remains, is no longer injured on account of the earnest. For he has fallen owing to his own slothfulness. I will state another solution to this question in order that you may learn that the devil does not injure, but their own slothfulness everywhere overthrows those who do not take caution. Let the devil be allowed to be exceedingly wicked, not by nature, but by choice and conviction. For that the devil is not by nature wicked, learn from his very names. For the devil, the slanderer that is, is called so from slandering. For he slandered man to God, saying, Does Job reverence you for nothing? But put out your hand and touch what he has. See if he will not blaspheme you to your face. He slandered God again to man, saying, Fire fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep. For he was anxious to persuade him that this warfare was stirred up from above, out of the heavens, and he set the servant at variance with the master, and the master with the servant. Rather, he did not set them at variance, but attempted to, but was not able, in order that whenever you may set another servant at variance with his master, namely Adam with God, and believing the devil's slander, you may learn that he gained strength, not owing to his own power, but from that man's slothfulness and carelessness. He is called the devil, therefore on that account. But to slander and to refrain from slander is not natural, but an action which takes place and which ceases to take place. Now such things do not reach the rank of nature or of the essence of a thing. I know that this consideration about essence in accident is hard to be grasped by many, but there 
are they who are able to lend a finer ear. And this is why we have spoken these things. Do you wish that I should come to another name? You shall see that this name also is not a name which belongs to his essence or nature. He is called wicked, but his wickedness is not from his nature, but from his choice. For even this at one time is present, at another time is absent. Do you not then say this to me, that it always remains with him? For it was not indeed with him at the beginning, but afterwards came upon him. So he is called apostate. Although many men are wicked, he alone is called wicked by preeminence. Why then is he so called? Because though in no way wronged by us, having no grudge, whether great or small, when he saw mankind had honor, he straightway envied him his good. What therefore could be worse than this wickedness, except when hatred and war exist without having any reasonable cause? Let the devil then be let alone, and let's bring forth the creation, in order that you might learn the devil is not the cause of ills to us, if we would only take caution, in order that you may learn that the weak in choice and the unprepared and slothful, even where there is no devil, falls and casts himself into many a depth of evil. The devil is evil. I know it myself, and it is acknowledged by all. So give your ear strictly to the things which are now about to be said. For they are not ordinary matters, but those about which many words, many times, and in many places arise, about which there is many a fight and battle, not only on the part of the faithful against the unbelievers, but also on the part of the faithful against the faithful. For this is that which is full of pain. The devil then is acknowledged, as I said, to be evil by all. What will we say about this beautiful and wonderful creation? Pray, is the creation too wicked? And who is so corrupt, who so dull and demented as to accuse the creation? What then will we say about this? For it is not wicked, but it is both beautiful and a token of wisdom and power and the loving kindness of God. Here at least how the prophet marvels at it, saying, How are your works magnified, O Lord? In wisdom you have made them all. He did go through them one by one, but withdrew before the incomprehensible wisdom of God. And as he has made it so beautiful and vast, here a certain one saying, From the vastness and beauty of the creatures, the originator of them all is proportionally seen. Here too Paul saying, For the invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made. For each of these things by which he spoke declare that the creation leads us to the knowledge of God, because it causes us to know the Master fully. What then, if we see this beautiful and wonderful creation itself becoming a cause of sin to many, will we blame it? In no way. But they are those who are unable to use this medicine rightly. How then is this, which leads us to a knowledge of God, a cause of sin? The wise say they were darkened in their understandings, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. The devil is nowhere here, a demon is nowhere here, but the creation alone is set before us, as the teacher of the knowledge of God. How then has it become the cause of sin? not owing to its own nature, but owing to the carelessness of those who do not take heed. What then? Will we take away even the creation? Tell me. And why do I speak about creation? 
Let us come to our own members. For even these we shall find to be a cause of destruction if we do not take heed, not because of their own nature, but because of our sloth. Look, an eye was given in order that you may behold the creation and glorify the master. But if you do not use the eye well, it becomes to you the minister of adultery. A tongue has been given in order that you might speak well, in order that you might praise the Creator. But if you do not give an excellent caution, it becomes a cause of blasphemy to you. And hands were given to you that you might stretch them out for prayer. But if you are not wary, you stretch them out for covetousness. Feet were given in order that you might run and do good works. But if you are careless, you will cause wicked works by means of them. Do you see that all things hurt the weak man? Do you see that even the medicines of salvation inflict death upon the weak, not because of their own nature, but because of his weakness? God made the heavens in order that you may wonder at the work and worship the master. But others, leaving the creator alone, have worshiped the heavens, and this is from their own carelessness and senselessness. But why do I speak of creation? Assuredly, what could be more conductive to salvation than the cross? But this cross has become an offense to the weak. For the word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Who could be more fit for teaching than Paul and the apostles? But the apostles became a fragrance of death to many. He says at least to one, a fragrance from death to death, to another, a fragrance from life to life. Do you see that the weak is hurt even by Paul, but the strong is injured, not even by the devil? Do you wish that we should exercise the argument in the case of Jesus Christ? Who is equal to that salvation? Who is more profitable than that presence? But this very saving presence, so profitable, became an additional means of discipline to many. For judgment, he says, I came into this world, that they who are blind may see, and they that see may become blind. What do you say? The light became a cause for blindness? The light did not become a cause for blindness, but the weakness of the eyes of the soul was not able to entertain the light. You have seen that a weak man is heard on all sides, but the strong is benefited on all sides. For in every case, the purpose is the cause, and in every case, the disposition is the master. Since the devil, if you would understand it, is even profitable to us, if we use him in the right way, and benefits us greatly, and we gain no ordinary advantages, and this we showed in a small degree from the case of Job, it is now also possible to learn this from Paul. For writing about the fornicator, he thus speaks, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. Behold, even the devil has become a cause for salvation, but not because of his own disposition, but because of the skill of the apostle. For as the physicians taking serpents and cutting off their destructive members prepare medicines for antidotes, so also did Paul. He took whatever was profitable of the chastening that proceeds from the devil, and he left the rest alone in order that you may learn that the devil is not the cause of salvation, but that he rushes to destroy and devour mankind. But that the apostle, through his own wisdom, cut his throat, 
here in the second epistle to the Corinthians, what he says about this very fornicator. Confirm your love towards him, unless by some means such a one should be swallowed up by too much sorrow, and we will be taken advantage of by Satan. We have snatched the man from the jaws of the wild beast, he says, for the apostle often uses the devil as an executioner. For the executioners punish those who have done wrong, not as they choose, but as the judge allows. For this is the rule for the executioner, to take vengeance, giving heed to the command of the judge. Do you see what a dignity the apostle mounted? He who was invested with a body used the bodiless as an executioner, which their common master says to the devil concerning Job, charging him, touch his flesh, but you will not touch his life, giving him a limit and a measure of vengeance, in order that the wild beasts might not leap upon him too shamelessly. This too the apostle does. For delivering the fornicator over to him, he says, for the destruction of the flesh. That is, you shall not touch his life. Do you see the authority of the servant? Don't fear the devil, even if he is bodiless, for he has come in contact with him, and nothing is weaker than he who has come into contact, even though he is not invested with a body, as then nothing is stronger than he who has boldness, even though he wears a mortal body. All these things have now been said by me, not in order that I might discharge the devil from blame, but that I might free you from slothfulness. For he wishes extremely to attribute the causes of our sins to himself, in order that we, being nourished by these hopes and entertaining on all kinds of evil, might increase the chastening in our own case, and may meet with no pardon from having transferred the cause to him, just as Eve met with none. But let us not do this. Let us know ourselves. Let us know our wounds, for this is how we will be able to apply the medicine. For he who does not know his disease will give no care to his weakness. We have sinned much, I know this well, for we are all liable to penalties. But we are not deprived of pardon, nor will we fade away from repentance, for we still stand in the arena, and we are still in the struggles of repentance. Are you old? And have you come to the last outlet of your life? Do not consider even that you have fallen from repentance, nor despair of your own salvation, but consider the robber who is freed on the cross. For what was briefer than that hour in which he was crowned? But no matter how brief, even this was enough for him for salvation. Are you young? Do not be confident in your youth, nor think that you have a very fixed term on life. For the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. On this account he has made our end invisible, in order that he might make our diligence and our ways visible. Do you not see men taken away prematurely day after day? On this account a certain one admonishes, Make no tarrying to turn to the Lord, and don't put off from day to day, because at any time, as you delay, you could be destroyed. Let the old man keep this admonition, let the young man take this advice. Yes, you are in security, and you are rich, and you do abound in wealth. But can no affliction happen to you? Still, hear what Paul says. When they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them. Circumstances change. We are not the masters of our end. But let us be the masters of virtue. Our master Christ is loving. Do you wish 
that I will speak of the ways of repentance? They are many and various and different and all lead to heaven. The first way of repentance is condemnation of sins. Declare first your sins that you might be justified. So also the prophet said, I will speak out my transgression to the Lord and you remitted the iniquity of my heart. Therefore, condemn yourself for your sins. This is enough for the master by way of self-defense. For he who condemns his own sins is slower to fall into them again. Awake your conscience, that inward accuser, in order that you may have no accuser at the judgment seat of the Lord. This is one way of repentance, the best. And there is another that's not less than this, which is not to bear a grudge against your enemies, to overcome anger, to forgive the sins of our fellow servants. For so will those which have been done against the master be forgiven us. See the second atonement of sins. For if you forgive, he says, your debtors, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Do you wish to learn a third way of repentance? Fervent and diligent prayer. And to do this from the bottom of the heart. Have you not seen that widow, how she persuaded the shameless judge? But you have a gentle master, both tender and kind. She asked against her adversaries, but you do not have to ask against your adversaries, but on behalf of your own salvation. And if you would learn a fourth way, I will say charitable giving, for this has a great and unspeakable power. For Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, when he had come to all kinds of evil and had entered into all sort of sin, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Redeem your sins by charitable giving and your iniquities by compassion on the poor. What could be compared with this loving kindness? After countless sins, after so many transgressions, he has promised that he will be reconciled with him that he has come into conflict with if he will show kindness to his fellow servants. And modesty and humility, not less than all these words spoken, exhaust the nature of sins. And the tax collector is proof, being unable to declare his good deeds in the sight of all, bringing forward his humility, and laying aside the heavy burden of his sins. See, we have now shown five ways of repentance. First, the condemnation of sins. Next, the forgiveness of our neighbor's sins. Thirdly, that which comes by prayer. Fourth, that which comes from almsgiving. Fifth, that which comes from humility. Do not then be lazy, but walk in all of these day by day. For the ways are easy, nor can you plead poverty. For even if you live poorer than all, if you are able to leave your anger and be humble and to pray fervently and to condemn sins, then your poverty is in no way a hindrance. And why do I speak such, when not even in that way of repentance, in which it is possible to spend money, I speak of almsgiving, not even there is poverty any hindrance to us from obeying the command. The widow who spent two mites is proof. Having learned then the healing of our wounds, let us constantly apply these medicines in order that we may return to health and enjoy the sacred table with assurance and with much glory reach Christ, the King of glory, and attain to everlasting good by the grace and compassion and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory, power, and honor to the Father, together with the all-holy and good and quickening Spirit, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen.
in the sermon, he he goes after, and we said it in the beginning that he's going to go after, you know, our own responsibility when we when we interact with life and and blaming things on the devil. But I feel like to me, one of the number one things he puts it all down on is slothfulness, right? Like he's you're lazy. That's why you don't have a better relationship with God. That's why you didn't fast last week. That's why you didn't spend more time in prayer. You didn't spend more time memorizing the word. You're just lazy. You know you should, but your desire is not there. I, I honestly feel like in my own heart that's true. I could should be listening to this Christian podcast. I should be uh, spending time listening to some, you know, worship music. I should be doing these things, but I don't because I just don't want to. I'm lazy. I'm feeling down. I'm tired. It's been a long day, whatever it is. And he's saying, look, it's you. It's your own lazy natures. If you were as industrious for God as you should be, you would be living a much better life. Your life would be much holier and you would be seeing fruit like crazy, but you don't because you aren't. And I think that is the truth for 99% of us. He was living in the same era of the Roman Republic, again, is probably doing pretty good. A lot of, he's living in the wealthy capitals. We in the West, at the very least, can definitely relate to that wealth. And you may not feel wealthy, but you're usually eating, you're usually sleeping in a comfortable bed with air conditioning or heat. You're doing okay in a lot of areas, but you struggle because, like me and you, we, we struggle with laziness, with wanting to do what God has called us to do. And I think, and then sometimes we'll say, oh, it's the devil, he's messing with me. No, it's it's your own heart and your own desires is really the problem. So I, I love that, and I love that even 1,700 years ago, people were doing something that I feel like we still do today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Mark Hansen. If you liked today's episode, visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at revivethoughts.com. Exciting news for you guys. So, up until now, if you have heard us mention the Patreon or uh, our merchandise page where we have an excellent shirt and mug and other things, you some people have even come to us and said, I don't even know where to find this stuff. We're going to make that more clear for you. But up until now, if you donated to us, there was nothing, there was no reward. There's no There's no love given. There's nothing that's going to happen to you. But we now have our ducks in a row. We have everything set up. And I'm excited to tell you what the new things that are coming down for you are. For starters, for first, every single person who donates to us on Patreon will get the exclusive, the one-of-a-kind, the beautiful and brilliant, I may be overselling it, but it, the, the very nice Revive Thoughts bookmark. Which, you know, it's pretty cool. And they will all be personally signed by Joel and myself. A little personal message, and it will be delivered to you. Put some ink on them. We'll put some ink on it. So for just as little as three bucks a month, you could get the Revive Thoughts bookmark, which will be excellent for keeping the page of whatever book you're reading. You know, if you're on this show, you're a bit of a theology nerd, so I know you're doing some some reading, heavy reading after Christmas. Secondly, we will now offer for our Patreon supporters an extra sermon a month. Now, how that works is we would never take a volunteer-made sermon and keep it from the listeners, but we could keep it from you for a month or two. And so that's what we're going to do is a sermon that you won't, you would have not have normally heard till February or March. 
you'll get to listen to it in January. And then when that sermon goes live uh, in that week of February or March, you'll get a brand new sermon that you have not yet heard and will only be able to be listened to by our Patreon exclusive team. But again, we promise if you make a sermon for us, you will always at some point get it to the listeners because our goal is not to hold this content from you or to charge you for sermons from history. But maybe you'll get a little bit of a chance to listen to it a little bit more, if a little quicker, if you are a Patreon sure. supporter. Sure. And so, we'll, sorry. So to clarify that, so Patreon subscribers get early access to early access. one episode a month where they can hear a month before everyone else. There you go. Lastly, uh, we are making something that is exclusive to only Patreon supporters. This, and for as little as three bucks a month, you can get access to it. This is a, a bit of a history portion. We've been told by many people they really enjoy going into the five to ten minutes of context. And we really enjoy it too. It's something we find a lot of fun. But we are always diving into one person. And so I think uh, this next bit that we're going to do, that we're going to be releasing to you Patreon supporters on a uh, semi-regular, maybe once every couple months basis, is going to be kind of a historical deep dive where we take on a time or a culture or an era or an event and we really focus on laying that out. The goal is that these will be a little bit longer, they'll be a little bit more extensive and it'll definitely be digging into some deep history. Future ideas that we've already talked about are, you know, the Salem witch trials and uh, what it was really like to be a Puritan or pilgrim and one of those, things of that nature. So that we're not just focused on following one person, but we're taking on a whole group of Christians or something that they're living through and really figuring out what went on there. All of these things are gonna be available to you guys as Patreon supporters, and we are really excited to be rolling this out and giving you guys this opportunity. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.